And that's the choice of the JSB crew, the very first big, fat, juicy of the morning, Seal and Crazy. Now it's all up to you. Lots of you starting to send in your choice songs, the songs that are going to make your Saturday morning. You're welcome to do so. We want to hear those big, fat, juicies as we take you through to 10 o'clock this morning. So as we wrap 2023, can you believe we're already in December? What a year this has been. I want to know what are some of the highlights and challenges that have taken place concerning conservation and nature. On the line, we've got a conservationist, Tim Neary. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate you making the time. Tim, I'm going to start. We I understand that we are ranked 20th globally for the most endangered species. That doesn't sound like a good thing. Or, or, I mean, 20th is very high with endangered species, surely. I think it is, Michelle, but of course we've got to remember that we've got such a vast range of species, and particularly um, fauna and both fauna and flora. So, you know, I think that's where we, we, we look at somewhere like the UK with, I think, about 30 or 40 odd bird species. Um, we look at ourselves with over 800. Yeah. So, you know, you, you, you get, your mind gets absolutely blown by, by the numbers. Um, but yeah, and, and unfortunately, a lot of our conservation laws, etc., are I think a bit antiquated. Uh, and then, of course, it's the interest in conservation in South Africa, which, and you can understand it. It's not as as big as you would think it is. So, when you say that our conservation laws are antiquated, what do you mean by that? We don't apply thought process to them. So we, we tend to, to be um, reactive rather than proactive. Yeah. And we debate things too long. And for example, trees, I mean, one of the trees that I work on, which is the Warburgia salutaris, um, in 1926. Which is, we, which is, if you don't mind me asking, what is that? It sounds like a very... A, it's a pepper bark. Oh, okay. It's, a, it's basically a um, chemist shop in one tree. Any, and used extensively across southern Africa um, by about 80% of indigenous communities. So it's, it's highly sought after. And in 1926, it was determined that that tree would go extinct. And they were quite right. But nothing was done about it. So we, we, tend, and we tend to be very short-sighted. So we'll have tree of the year and we'll get all excited and then we don't have a program that continues, shall we say, for the next 100 years, if need be, to make sure that you're actually correcting the damage that's been done or trying to correct the damage that's been done. And we've, we've got some lovely success stories, though, on our, on, 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 in South Africa. So we can look at all the baddies, but then we can look at something like turtles, for example. Um, it's the second longest running turtle or the second longest running conservation program, I think, in the world. It's the longest in South Africa. It's just celebrating 60 years of turtle sure. conservation this year. Um, and, you know, we, we get excited about rhino and we jump up and down. There are 70 breeding uh, leatherbacks that come back to our shores. They drop dramatically over the years. Yeah. But the work that people like Santos bought you um, of KZN Wildlife are doing with a monitoring program. And it's all this quiet work that's done in the background. And I think that's one of the nice things. You, you seldom hear of the tree work that we do. Yeah. You don't hear about the, the turtle work. There's a whole lot of people doing the most incredible work in South Africa outside of government circles in many times. And in many times, 
um, as much as we might want to knock Sand Parks or whoever for their, pro- their programs that they're undertaking, they've got wonderful people who are under-resourced and are trying desperately to keep a lot of these projects going. Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the wonderful things that we've had. And we're seeing it. We, we've hunted down a few in this year, um, as I say, turtles and, and a few others. Um, and it's the work that's been done there that is going to pay off into conservation into years to come. So um, we need to go to a break. But when we come back, I mean, you mentioned that the pepper bark was like a chemist in one tree or a chemist shop in one tree. And I mean, that how much it's used in diverse communities around the country. I mean, I suppose the question that we'll ask you right after this is really how we do then start to look at a citizen scientists, but also working with Sangomas and traditional healers with regards to those conservation issues. So we'll get back to that in a moment. The Jet Set Breakfast with Michelle Constant. 722, we're chatting to the conservationist, Tim Neary. We're talking about um, conservation highlights and working with different communities to try and ensure that endangered species are protected. Tim Neary is talking about the pepper bark, which he says is a chemist all in one. Tim, we the critical part of that is exactly as, as, as I was saying, I imagine, is that we start to look at how people really support what it is that um, you are doing in terms of conservation with regard to traditional healers, also Sangomas, but also individual citizens and citizen scientists as well. Well, I think let's start with the citizen scientists. Um, Without citizen science, we don't have conservation. Uh, And that's right across any species. And that's from the trees uh, you look at the work that's been done with the ground hornbills in places like Kruger National Park, where uh, they are absolutely blown away by the number of extra birds that have been found and what you're learning by observation. And that's all done by citizen scientists. Yeah. So, you know, that is, that's incredible. Let's look at something like this pepper bark. So what do we normally do? Our normal knee-jerk reaction is that government passes a law that says, thy shalt not. And then that law filters down and it gets worse and worse. We adopted a a decision that we aren't going to use the stick approach. We're rather going to use the cooperative approach. And that's what we've done with this tree. And we went out and discovered what does it mean to the average person, rural South Africa, and not only rural, urban South Africa. And in fact, many occasions, herbalists as well as people that are for example, Sangormas. And we sit and we work with the Sangormas and we discuss with them these traditional healers what are their needs, what does this plant do, and what are the issues. And invariably there are issues, for example, in growing the plant, mm. um, exactly how, you know, the different issues around propagation, etc. And that's where we are tremendously lucky is we have partners like SAPI. And they provide their research facility at no charge, and this whole program is run at no cost to anybody. So it is a cooperative arrangement, and conservation becomes a byproduct. And that's when conservation really works. It's when you're not leaning on somebody and saying, you have to. You rather get them to say, I want to. And then as a byproduct, the, for example, we've got the next generation of trees that we put in. We've been going, running this project since 2013. 
And we've now got the next generation of trees actually propagating and producing their own seeds. Wow. Now, that is, a, that, is, that is where it starts to now expand itself and really become super. And, you know, that is, again, um, I think we're up to five species now that we're working on with the traditional healers. Some of them you'd be quite surprised about. Teva tree, for example. But we're not waiting like they did in 1926 to decide that the fever tree is going to have an issue because of the high level of collection of it for medicinal value. And that's one of the other items that you've got to be very careful of. So often conservationists will say, ah, we're going to poo-foo this. Okay, this is bunkum science. Well, fortunately with one with a pepper bark there, it's proven that yeah. a lot of the items that they're doing, uh, we do um, the proper research work. And it's proven, not like hoodie, etc. Yeah. And then you, once you do that, you've got to realize that this, there's no chemist shop in the middle of Guiani. Okay? And, and, and this is where it becomes tremendously important to support what has been undertaken. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, 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 a lot of, it's a lot of very interesting work. You get to meet some of the most interesting people and you learn so much about it. And again, I'll use that, our pepper bark is traditionally they took off the, the bark and they used the roots. Through mm -hmm. science, combining that with the traditional healers, we learned that the leaves and the twigs, the green twigs have got the same um, medicinal properties. And therefore, instead of waiting 11 to 15 years before you could start to harvest and possibly destructive harvesting, we are now harvesting very much around about five years. And it's, it's a completely sustainable harvest. Okay, we're just going to go to a, a message from one of our listeners. Good morning, Michelle. George Makosa Eklabecha here. In the issue of extinction of flora and fauna, in PE recently, a rock python was uh, captured by illegal hunters and was killed. It was said to have been extinct. And uh, Port Elizabeth is not a place where you can find a python unless it's a pet. But why was it classed as extinct and it shows up? Can it be that it was smuggled maybe through our Kuha Harbor because it was found around the area? Thank you. So there's a question, is what happens when something is, is described as extinct but is not actually extinct? Okay, so this is where we, we talk of functionally extinct in the wild. Yeah. That usually means that there are less than 50 breeding pairs of that species in a given area. So it can be locally extinct, it can be regionally extinct, can be extinct on, on a continent, um, although you may still have a few species left. So as much as we would like to, to, to deem that, very often there are a couple of species uh, or a couple of the species that find a comfortable place to live where nobody bothers them and we don't know about them. Yeah. So, you know, that's why, but we will say, if, if you understand that there are less than 50 species in that area that are marked and understood and known, it will usually be classed as critically endangered or breeding extinct in that region. And that's the, that's the difference. So that's why you will from time to time find some, but also on many occasions, once it's extinct in that area, it's unable 
to get its breeding program going, and it just simply goes right down to the bottom. The northern white rhino is a typical example. Um, where I think they're now trying to, they've got one female left, and they're trying to work with the sperm of a male who died a few years ago. Tim, in closing, I mean, I mentioned right up front that South Africa ranks 20th for the most endangered species. We then started to look at how many um, species we have in South Africa. But I see that, in fact, the United States is second on the list, followed by Australia, Mexico, Brazil, Madagascar, India, Malaysia and Colombia, as well as the Philippines. So I'd like to say, actually, if you look at it like that, we're doing very, very well. In fact, we are doing very well. We are growing our areas. We are growing some of our conservation areas. And we are getting a new breed of conservationists that is coming in slowly Mm. but surely. And it's the understanding that it's not only about conservation. It's biodiversity and man. And we've got to keep on bringing that. Stop fencing it and start getting people to understand that looking after the biodiversity is looking after ourselves. And in fact, is most probably the most threatened species on the planet is man. Tim Neary, he's a conservationist looking up as we wrap 2023, the highlights on matters concerning conservation and nature. And we first read that story in the Mail and Guardian. 7.30, time for us to crack into Today in History. Now, as you know, this is the week in history, but we go back in time. So if we look at this week, the first week of Uh, December, then what happened in this week over time on the African continent? We've got James Hall, who hails from Eswatini. He's a writer, historian and founder, and he uh, is the founder of africatodayyesterday.org. Some great uh, narratives coming out of that particular website going back in time.